Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. So delighted to have our guest with us today. Rebecca Heisman has worked with the Audubon Society, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, the Wilson Ornithological Society, and more. Her brilliant book, Flight Paths, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration, is out now. It is a delight. I am enjoying it. My husband is enjoying it, and he's not even a birder. He just loves history. Well, welcome to The Thing with Feathers, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It is so great to have you. Your book was such a delight. It it feels like 50 years of research must have gone into this book. Um, but I can see you on the screen. You don't look anywhere near 50. Um, so why migration? What captured your love and your attention? How was this book born? Uh, well, so before COVID, I had a full-time job working for the American Ornithological Society, which is like the biggest professional organization for bird scientists. They give out research grants and put on scientific conferences and stuff like that. And I was their one-person communications department. So I wore a lot of hats, but a big part of what I did was promoting new research that was being published in their scientific journals. And so I was reading all these scientific papers and talking to the researchers behind them and turning them into blog posts and press releases and what have you. And I kept getting fascinated by the methods sections of all these papers, which is where they explain how they did the research. And I think I would totally understand if a lot of people reading scientific papers kind of skimmed through that section to get to the part where they explain what they found and why it matters. But I just kept thinking that the methods were behind all these papers were really cool. I either had learned as an undergraduate and had forgotten, or I just never knew in the first place that you could study bird migration using weather radar, like you see on the Weather Channel. You could study it by putting out microphones to passively record the calls of birds passing over at night. You could study it by you could study it by um, analyzing the amount of rare hydrogen isotopes in bird feathers, and that gives you a clue about where the birds had been. So I just was wondering, like, who figured the, all of this out? And what is the science behind it? And so I left that job around the start of the pandemic and ended up writing a book proposal. And the rest was history. <laughs> I guess. So where do the birds go, Rebecca? And tell us a little <laughs> bit about the history, because people didn't always understand migration. They thought the birds hibernated or yeah. died or transformed into other creatures, which I love the mythology that were like, what a fascinating theory. Where do the birds go? And how did we begin to learn? Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different kinds of bird migration. There are birds that do pretty short distance migration where like within the US they might just be flying from, you know, the northern part of the contiguous 48 states to the southern part of it or whatever. There's also altitudinal migration, which is birds that just move up and down within a mountain range over the course of a year. But a lot of times when we talk about bird migration, what we are thinking about is these long distance migrants that make these are really these really amazing trips from North America to South America and back or from Europe to Africa and back if you're in the other hemisphere. 
And yeah, for a long time, people didn't know for sure what was going on when birds disappeared and reappeared at different times of the year. And I write in the book about like, this goes back to Aristotle, who had some theories that maybe birds were hibernating in tree crevices. There was a guy a few centuries ago named Charles Morton, who had this whole theory worked out about how maybe they were flying to the moon and back every year. That one's my favorite. (laughs) Yes, it's so weird. And, you know, it sounds so crazy, but he actually wrote some stuff about how, well, maybe they're bulking up on body fat and that's how they're able to make this long flight. And that is how birds make these long flights. So he kind of had the right idea, actually, as ridiculous as it sounds. But then in 1822, there was a stork that was shot in Germany. And with with a gun, and the hunter went to pick it, pick up the dead stork, and it had this ginormous spear through its neck. And we thought this is really weird. So they analyzed the wood and iron in the spear, and it turned out that the spear had been made in Africa. So this was a bird that had been speared through the neck by a hunter in Africa, somehow escaped and recovered, and completed its migration back to Germany, and then got shot by another hunter there. So very very unlucky for this unfortunate bird, but it was the first hard evidence that birds were making these long distance flights between continents. And that was kind of what gave us the start of understanding that long distance migration is a thing and trying to figure out how it works. I'm a fairly new birder. And and one of the things that is so fascinating to me is the fact that most birds migrate at night, that you're sleeping in your bed and there are thousands, sometimes, you know, if you're in the great Ohio flyway in March, hundreds of thousands of birds that are flying overhead at night. And I I think this is so amazing. Will you describe to us how that night migration happens? Because they're not like 20 feet above us. They're mostly far above us. How does night migration work? Why do they fly at night? Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, I'm finding. And so this isn't all birds, but if we're talking about songbirds, most of them do migrate at night. They kind of rest and refuel during the day, and then they take off around dusk. And there's a few reasons why they do this. One is just that the atmosphere, I mean, we think these are all just people's theories. It's hard to know for sure. But one is that the atmosphere is calmer at night. There's not the sun creating thermals and turbulence. There's less um, predators out. So there's a few different reasons why they might choose to try to make progress at night rather than during the day. And yeah, so while, and yeah, they do, they, the, I don't remember exact numbers and I think it varies from species to species, but they do get pretty high up. Yeah. While they're doing this. And while they're doing this, they're making these calls that are, in a lot of cases, different from calls that that species of bird would make at any other time. They're these unique nocturnal flight calls. And so that is one way that people have experimented with to study migration is to put out microphones to pick up and record these nocturnal flight calls. Because it's not perfect because you only get information about birds that are calling. Some of them are not calling. They don't call all the time. So it's not a perfect method. But if you can identify the species making these calls, which is a whole other source of difficulty since they don't make these calls at other times, it can be hard to figure out what's what. But if you can do that, then you can get some sort of some sample of what birds are passing overhead. And there's people who do this who aren't even scientists. People get into this as a hobby, like a weird sub hobby of birding where you like put out your own microphone in your backyard and like a bucket to amplify the sound. And there's like giant Facebook groups of people who do this as a hobby, like swapping recordings to figure out what's on them. It's pretty interesting. The subcategories of birders are so, so interesting because you might be a like speed birder and you've got to get your list and you've got to see all the things, or you might be a slow birder or you might be a ham radio birder, right? You're recording device (laughs) out in the backyard. I love it. There's something for everyone. Yeah. Truly. So what are some of the challenges in tracking migration? You, you described that they make different calls, they're really, really high up, but I know some of the barriers have been our technology. Yeah, I think there's a lot of 
There's several points in the book where I talk about someone had an idea of a way that they could study bird migration, and then it took another decade or two for the technology to get there. So one example is Tom Smith, who's a researcher in California, who's the first person who came up with this idea that maybe we could figure out something about birds migration using DNA. So if you think of of 23andMe, you can send off a sample of your DNA and it can tell you roughly where your ancestors came from. And it's possible to do the same thing for birds. You can take a sample of DNA, like a feather sample, just like pluck a feather and analyze that DNA. And if you have already done all the labor necessary to kind of map the geographic variation within that species of like the breeding populations in North America, there's slight genetic differences from place to place, then you can pluck this feather from a bird on migration and do this analysis and figure out which of these geographic populations it must have originated from. But when Tom Smith first came up with this idea in the 80s, we did not have the technology to do that sort of genetic sequencing. And he spent the next couple of decades of his career like sitting on this idea and watching the, the genetic sequencing technology get better and better and better. And then finally, the Human Genome Project came along, and the, there was a lot more investment into doing large volumes of genetic sequencing quickly and cheaply. And so he and a protege of his, Kristen Rigg, were able to kind of borrow from the Human Genome Project and apply those techniques to birds and finally bring bird genoscapes, as they call them, to reality. And so this is an active area of research now. So much of cutting edge science feels like you're a crackpot until you're right. Yes. Until the technology catches up and then it's yes. this wonderful breakthrough. I was so interested in the the when science continues to advance and trackers get smaller, there are different kinds of birds you can track. You can't put mm-hmm. a one a one ounce transmitter on a two ounce hummingbird. It's not yeah. gonna work. So so much of it is that as the technology advances, how can we use it to answer the questions that we still have? Yeah, I think a lot of people are at least vaguely familiar with the idea of putting these little like tracking device backpacks on birds, but there's a lot of different kinds of, like I spent three chapters going through all the different kinds of tracking backpacks and how they were developed and how they work. And how small you can make it depends on the type, like on the sort of technology that you're trying to fit in there. And yeah, to put like you have to have, to put a transmitter on a very small bird, you have to have a very, very, very small transmitter. So we've gotten that threshold lower and lower and lower over time, and it's allowed us to get information about new species. And the rule of thumb about how small that transmitter has to be is not really based on any hard data. For a long time, they went by, like a a transmitter should be no more than 5% of the bird's total body weight, which sounds great. It's No one really did any research to arrive at 5%. It was just a number that someone kind of made up back in the early days of putting gadgets on birds. And so now some some researchers aim for 3% instead. And there's not some magic cutoff below which you're guaranteed that there's not going to have any effect. It's not going to have any effect on the bird. There's always sort of a trade-off where you have to be monitoring, like, is it affecting the bird? How much is it affecting the bird? And, you know, is it is it worth it for what we're going to use this data for? Mm. Your book is full of such fabulous facts and figures and dates. But what I really loved about it was that those things are lovely and fascinating on their own, but you've knit them together with such beautiful stories. So there's such a beautiful heartbeat in this book. One of my favorite stories was the story of E7, the bar-tailed godwit. Tell us about E7 and and (laughs) making it on Brian Williams. Not every bird makes it on on the nightly news. Yeah. So bar-tailed godwits, I I still can't believe that there's a bird that does this. It sounds so ridiculous. So they breed in Alaska 
They're only in Alaska for a few weeks because the season when it's when there's a lot of bugs and it's good to be a bird in Alaska is not that long. And so then their breeding season is over. Fall is here. They take off from Alaska. They fly nonstop all the way across the Pacific Ocean without touching down anywhere until they get to New Zealand. Like, who does that? that this is a bird about the size of a football. It's ridiculous. In spring, they do something different where they kind of work their way up the coast of Asia and then make a shorter hop over to get to Alaska. But in fall, they've got these like tailwinds that make it possible to just zip across the ocean. And ornithologists had had an inkling for a while that this must be going on just based on where people saw them at different times of the year. They're like, okay, people see them on the coast of Asia in spring, but not in fall. So where are they in fall? So they finally got satellite transmitters and they literally surgically implanted them inside the bird because they were worried that if it was on the outside of the bird, it would cause like drag and interfere with their flight. So they had this like mobile veterinary hospital in a tent on the Alaskan tundra and birds are really resilient. So they could do this without it causing a lot of harm to the bird. The birds recovered pretty quickly where they could just insert this little transmitter into the bird's body cavity. And so E7 was the first bird where they were successful, where the battery and the transmitter lasted long enough that they could track this flight all the way across the Pacific Ocean and prove that this was happening. And they put out a press release for this, and the media went wild. Like, this was on the national news all over the world. It's such a famous story. In fact, it's such a famous story that years later, I called up one of the researchers who was involved with this and was like, will you talk to me about E7? And she was like, ugh. <laughs> fine like this is the third time I've told this story this week she's like oh, everyone wants to hear about like this is this was I forgot the year is escaping me but this was quite a while ago now and she is still clearly called upon to talk about E7 on a very regular basis but that was kind of part of the story that I wanted to tell is that this bird has become a celebrity and become and been talked about endlessly ever since and this poor researcher, shes it's like Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. Like, you're going to be singing that song at every concert for the rest of your life. I read, yes. I read an, an interview with her recently, and she was like, luckily, I really like the song, because that's <laughs> the only one every, like, that's the number one request. Yeah. Tell, tell me about E7. It was, a, it was a fascinating story. I was not yet a birder, and, and I had not yet heard it. So my first exposure to E7 was, was your book. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and just thinking through those questions, because as a birder, when you see a bird somewhere and then you hear from someone else that that bird three weeks later is in a different part of the world, there's so many questions about, okay, but do you just have that bird in that part of the world? Or did that bird really make that journey? Yeah. And the ways we're choosing to answer those questions are so fascinating. Tell us a little bit about bird banding. You had such a delightful description of bird banding and the nets in which the birds are caught and how it's really gentle. Because sometimes I'll see pictures on social media and I'm like, that bird does not look like they're enjoying it. That cardinal <laughs> took a chunk out of your finger because he is not a happy camper. Uh, tell us about bird banding and the information we can glean from that. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's maybe not super enjoyable for the birds, but it's overall very safe for them and it's over quickly. So bird banding goes back longer than pretty much any other technique that I talk about in the book. We've been doing this since around the beginning of the 20th century. And it's basically just you, you capture birds and you put you capture them alive and bring them in and you put a little metal bracelet around their ankle. I mean, it's not really their ankle, but it's leg anatomy is different from ours, but basically their ankle above their foot. That's got an individual, like a unique number or something on it so that you can identify this bird again. And then you let it go and you hope that someone else will catch it or will find it after it's died. And so you can get some information on where that bird might've gone. And now the way that we capture birds for this usually is using tools called mist nets. These came along after the advent of bird banding, around actually around after World War II, they, 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 we got the idea from the Japanese. 
Um, but so mist nets, they're kind of like a, if you picture like a badminton net, like just a net suspended between two poles, but it's this really fine mesh that's almost invisible, especially if you're a bird and it's got some vegetation behind it. And there, it's kind of loose, baggy mesh, but then running through it are these taut horizontal lines so that if a bird flies into this netting, it kind of gets stuck in almost like a little pocket where like it falls down behind one of these taut lines. It's a little hard to describe if you've never seen it. And then you can go in and very carefully and gently untangle the bird, which I've done it a little bit. I never got really good at it. There's definitely a, a skill set in being able to gently untangle a bird from all these loops of net. And then you bring it in and you put these bands on it. And what's really cool is that we have been doing this for such a long time. Like I said, it goes back to the early days of the 20th century that so they call them they call the places that do this bird observatories where like every spring and every fall at the same spot you're going out you're catching birds and every time you catch one in addition to putting a band on it you're recording like I caught this bird on this date it was this species it was approximately this old this is how heavy it was and so over time even if those birds are never seen again because only a very small percentage of them are ever actually recaptured but you still have this record of like at this place in Pennsylvania this, like these are the dates that these species pass through in spring and fall. And like, these are the dates that the males pass through. These are the dates that the females pass through. And so this is how we know, for example, that bird, that spring migration is getting earlier and earlier gradually over time, which presumably is linked to climate change. A lot of the researchers who have found this pattern would, would caution you that it's really hard to make that, that causation leap. But I think to most, most of us would look at that and say, okay, that's probably climate change. And so, yeah, bird banding, is, bird banding is really cool and goes back for a long time. And there's, there's all sorts of surprising things that you can learn from these long-term bird banding data sets. Hmm. And so many birds exist on the very edge of what's possible, like yeah. e- E7 that flies all the way across the Pacific Ocean and birds where, as you write in the book, you know, just a few days earlier or later in the season, just a couple of degrees of temperature can be so, have such an impact on them yeah. because they do push themselves to these, these limits. How can we help migrating birds? What are things that we can do when they are pushed to the very limits of what they can do? Things that we can do as citizen scientists, small things, and then also things that maybe we should advocate for on a oh, bigger level. Oh, that's a great level. question. Yeah. Um, well, so a lot of people who are into birds will be familiar with the paper that came out a few years ago that was called the Three Billion Birds Paper. When this was looking at all birds in North America, not just migratory species, but they found that in North America, there are about three billion with a B fewer breeding birds now than there were in 1870. And so when this paper came out, there was the, the researchers behind it worked with a whole team of, of experts and publicists, and they came up with, they knew that there was going to be a lot of attention on this, and so they came up with a set of what they called seven simple actions that anyone can take to help birds. And so you can Google it, like three billion birds, seven simple actions, and it'll bring you to this. So one thing, a lot of people think that by putting out bird feeders, you're helping birds, like bird feeders with seed in them. I am not convinced that putting out seed feeders really makes a difference for the birds themselves. I think, you know, it's a nice supplement to their diet, but in most cases they can find plenty of food to eat on their own. So if you're putting out bird feeders, I think it's important to be aware that you're more just doing it for your own enjoyment because you like seeing the birds in your yard. It's not really the best way to help wild birds. And I think a lot of people who put out bird feeders also don't realize how often you need to bring them in and like bleach them and clean them to keep them safe for the birds. So bird feeders are actually not top of my list for things you can do to help birds. Um, A big one that a lot of people actually don't want to hear is to keep your cats inside. 
uh, when you look at the big drivers of this decline since 1970, the big one is probably habitat loss, but other factors that they th scientists think you know are contributing to that data include predation by outdoor cats. Um, window collisions is another one. So if you have windows in your house, birds might be flying into those and dying. And so there's a lot of products out there that you can get where you can put stickers or other things on your windows to help stop birds from flying into them. And just putting like one, like we've all seen these bird shaped decals, just putting like one in the middle of the window isn't enough. So you have to do some research on spacing and stuff to make sure that's really effective. You can, if you're interested in Again, a big, a big problem is habitat loss, and so you can turn your yard into good habitat for birds by planting more native species that support, you know, provide insects and berries that birds eat directly and support insect, or, yeah, support insect populations that birds can eat. You can reduce your use of pesticides in your yard because pesticides can also have harmful effects on birds. And, of course, you can get involved in calling your legislators, like keeping track. There's a lot of, you know, any environmental organization, Audubon, Sierra, American Bird Conservancy, what have you, you sign up for your mailing list and you will get a million emails about legislature and policy changes that are coming up that might affect birds. And you can get involved and call your legislature, call your, your legislators, write letters to the editor, things like that, so that you can advocate for birds on a larger scale. Mm. I love it. I love <laughs> it. And the more we learn, the more we can do and the more we can help. And the more we learn, the more we tend to love, right? The more detail yeah. you have about birds, the more you love them, the more you want to help them. So all those pieces of working together and every little bit is better than nothing. Yeah, definitely. You you mentioned you love the quote, you're not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free <laughs> to desist from it. And tell me a little bit about that because I do think, especially studying as you do, the limits of these animals and how they can really suffer because of increases in temperature or changes in the seasons – but then how do you sleep at night, right? How do you not just yeah. spend every hour on the phone with your with your local congressman saying, hey, the birds, they need you. Where do you find that balance? Yeah, I put that in. I forget which question I put that in response to in your, in your pre-interview questionnaire. I, so I am, I am not Jewish, but my husband is. And this is a quote from, you know, Jewish thought, one of the, the commentaries on the Torah. It's something like, you are, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. And it's basically like you, the burden of fixing the world is not 100% on you. Like you can't, you don't have to do it all yourself. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you, like you alone are not going to fix everything, but you also are not allowed to just say, well, if I can't fix everything myself, then I, then I don't even have to try. And so, you know, I, I, Get, I have a five-year-old. I want him to grow up in like a world that's still nice to live in. And so climate change definitely keeps me up at night, but I don't want it to become the entire focus of every waking moment of my life or I will be miserable. So the way I look at this is I try to like every week, kind of when I sit down to plan out my week, I think about like, what am I going to do this week? Like what is like, that's going to be my bit of activism for the week. Okay. I'm going to put that on my to-do list. I'm going to do that thing. And then I have contributed this week to making the world a better place. And then I don't have to think about it the other 100 and whatever hours of the week. And so like you can, you can contribute and do your part. And then you can give yourself permission to enjoy your life the rest of the time is, I guess, the way I try to approach it. Mm. That, that word permission, I think, is a really beautiful yeah. and important word. That, and, and the most 
the strongest motivator from what I understand from a very limited understanding of psychology is <laughs> the the strongest motivator is joy. It's not yeah. guilt. It's not compunction, you know? So to continue staying connected to the natural world in those ways that bring you joy so that it's permission to do the thing and then rest from the thing rather than, huh. Yeah. I, you know, and I have so much respect for people who do devote a lot more time to climate activism, but I've known a couple people who took it to a degree where it seemed like that was literally all they thought about, like every waking moment. Like I knew someone once who was very involved in climate activism and some other people that I knew were like thinking about starting a book club. And this woman says, well, I'm only interested in being in a book club if we're only going to read books about climate change. I'm like, you're allowed to read books that are not about climate change. <laughs> like It's okay. So... I think it's it's important to stay active and to care about things and to do your parts. You know, I I write post you can do things like write postcards to voters to support, you know, candidates who care about climate change. Like and I spend time doing things like this, but I also like it's okay to enjoy your life too. So I hope that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and when the obligation overtakes the joy, sometimes people can't hear your message anymore, right? Like the book club becomes kind of a joyless experience and suddenly no one's in it, but you, and you're not doing the good that you hope for. (laughs) Um, well, Rebecca, what can a feather teach us? This was one of the most interesting chapters in the book. What can we learn from a feather? Yeah, so I talked a little bit about the bird gene escape thing where you can pluck a feather and there's some DNA at the base of it that you can analyze. But you also, so I talked about this a little bit at the beginning, you can analyze how much deuterium, which is a hydrogen isotope, is in a feather. And that also can tell you something about where the bird has been. So there's no way to explain this without like backing up a little bit and, and like reminding everyone of isotope chemistry. But so please, I'm yes. not a chemist. Okay. Take us there. So elements, you know, everyone's heard of hydrogen. So there's normal hydrogen. And then there's also like a few weird flavors of hydrogen, the main one of which is deuterium. So normal hydrogen does not have any neutrons in its nucleus. Deuterium is high, still hydrogen, but it does have one neutron in its nucleus, so it's at, so the atoms are a little bit heavier because they've got this extra thing in there. And some tiny percentage of hydrogen atoms on Earth are actually deuterium. And they're in the ocean, and then they get sucked up into the atmosphere, and they fall as rain. And in North America, as moisture kind of sweeps across the continent from the ocean deuterium is a little bit heavier. So the deuterium is is falling out in the rain a little bit sooner than the normal hydrogen. And so you actually get this this gradient, sorry, across the continent where there's more deuterium in some places than others in a way that we understand and and can predict. And when a bird, so birds, the birds that migrate between North and South America, they molt their feathers in on the North American end of that trip and regrow them every year. And once a feather is grown, it's, it's inert. The stuff that is in that feather isn't changing until that feather falls off and the bird grows a new one. So when a bird is in a place in North America and it's eating and drinking, however much deuterium, whatever the percentage is in that spot, is the percentage of deuterium that the bird ends with in its feathers, of all the hydrogen atoms that are in its feathers. And that is still the percentage that's there even when the bird flies away to a different place. So then we can pluck a feather on migration or on the bird's wintering grounds and analyze how much deuterium is in that feather and use that isotope analysis to figure out about where that bird was from or or where that bird was 
at the northern end of its migratory cycle when it grew that feather. So there's no way to explain how this works without like five minutes of, of backstory. But yes, that's that's how stable isotope analysis works for birds. I love bird it. Migration. It's so interesting. It's it's CSI migration. Yes. It's so <laughs> yeah, well, I think most people have never heard of this idea. It's so out there. No, I, I never had. And now I look at feathers in a completely different way. You know, I was out <laughs> on a walk this morning and I was like, I wonder what stories this feather has to tell me. It's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And one of the things that I so love about birding is there are layers underneath layers, underneath layers, underneath layers. Like you could yeah. study molting your entire life. You could study oh, yeah. migration your entire life. And there are just all these, it's this bottomless bowl of interest and delight. Yes. Um, and it's just, what a, what a wonder, what a wonder that we get to have birds. <laughs> yes. So what is one question? This is gonna be a hard question. I bet. Ooh, what is uh-oh. one question that you still have about migration that you're most interested in finding an answer to. And I know you are not the one out there doing the field work, but in your study, in your research, if you could have the answer to one question you still have, what would it be and why? Mm, that's a hard one. Oh my gosh. I don't know that one thing really pops into my mind. I'm, I do think it's fascinating though how, you know, with scientists, every answer that they get just spawns six more questions. So I don't know that there's any like one big lingering mystery at this point with migration as much as there's a thousand little mysteries. Like what we're working on, what, what a lot of migration, and this, I'm, I'm kind of sidestepping your question here. I'm sorry, because I'm not thinking of a, of a brilliant answer for that, but like scientists who study migration, a lot of what they're working on now is just getting, drilling down to more and more and more detail with individual species and with populations Mm -hmm. within a species of like, even within one species, are all the populations going to the same wintering grounds? Are they using the same migratory routes? Are they like separate or are they mingling while they're on migration? You know, things like that. Because that's the level of detail that we need to really be able to effectively target conservation. Like if we know this migratory species is declining, we don't know if that's because of a problem on its breeding grounds or its wintering grounds or its migratory stopovers. And so every, for every species and every population within a species, that's the level of detail that we need to be able to understand what's going on. And so I think that's the big lingering question now is, like I said, it's not one question. It's a million little questions because like we need to get these, this detailed data for every species that's out there if we want to understand what's going on well enough to be able to do good conservation work. It's not 1882 when we're discovering a stork. yeah. 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 That's that's really, really interesting. The micro questions. It feels a little bit, you and I bonded over having a, a kid around the same age <laughs> and like you answer the one question and there are 68 questions behind that question. And oh, you're gosh. like, and now we're off to the races, right? Like yep. I just, my, my middle kid, he's seven the other day was like, what's the fastest animal? And I was like, oh, I know this one. I know this one. That's a cheetah. And he goes, well, how many of them are there? And I was like, okay, now we got to go to Google. Like yes. that, that's just, just off to the races. So many good questions. Well, my, um, my five-year-old can't comprehend the fact that, like, when I was a kid, we did not have Google. And if you wondered something, you just had to wonder until you went to the library where the encyclopedia is. Like, Right, which could be days. And yes. sometimes the encyclopedia didn't know. Or the encyclopedia was 10 years outdated. <laughs> 
I remember as a kid, my elementary school gave us the assignment to find out what was the most populous city in the world. So we went to the library and read this encyclopedia from 1979, you know, and it's 1990 and the the data was outdated and I did not get a good grade. And I was like, that does not feel fair. Like we did all the things we possibly could do. There was no internet yet or there was, but it was old and slow. Um, Well, Rebecca, a little piece of your personal story that you shared with me is that you're also a cancer survivor. Can you share with us how birding has been kind of a guide and a balm for you in walking that difficult road? Yeah, and I actually touch on this a little bit in the conclusion of the book. So it's it's not a big story in the book, but it's not a secret either. Yeah, so I mentioned that I left my full time job around the start of COVID. And that was in part because I had a, a two-year-old at the time and, you know, we pulled him out of childcare. That's what everyone was doing then. But also kind of the other piece that made it impossible to keep up with a full-time job is I was also diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma in spring 2020. And so cancer treatment and childcare of a two-year-old and full-time job, something had to go and it was, it was the job. And you couldn't say no to the cancer? You'd be like, I'm going to keep my job. I'm just not going to do this. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Um, luckily it turns out that if you have to get diagnosed with stage four cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma is a pretty good one to get because it is curable, quote unquote, Mm. even at stage four. So I am fine now and hopefully will continue to be fine. But I did six rounds of chemotherapy in summer 2020 during pandemic lockdowns when no one was allowed in the chemotherapy room except the patients and the nurses. And then went home and took care of my two-year-old all day and also was working on writing a book proposal because I had quit my job and felt like I needed some sort of project. And so <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a weird time. And yeah, I had um, at the start of 2020, before I knew that COVID or cancer were going to happen, I'm not usually a big lister with birding. I don't really keep a life list anymore. But I had decided at the beginning of 2020, you know, I'm going to be traveling to some interesting places this year. I am going to keep a life list just for fun, or not, not a life list, excuse me, a year list just for fun and see what species of birds I, I see, how many species of birds I see this year. The travel that I thought I was going to be doing in 2020 did not happen. 2020 did not unfold even remotely how I thought it would, but I did keep, I did keep the year list. And so it became a very different year list of just seeing how many species I saw sort of incidentally while on walks in the woods with my kid and stuff like that, which was fun in a whole different way and gave me something to distract myself from everything else going on. Mm. There's a book idea there, the distraction of birds. <laughs> they're, they're good yeah, for maybe. that. They There's, are. Well, Rebecca, where are you finding hope these days? Oh, where am I finding hope these days? I mean, I already talked a little bit about just trying to find one little thing that I can do every week to feel like I am somehow contributing to the fight to, you know, against climate change and to just make the world a better place in general. Um, Going outside and spending time with, with birds and, again, just being reminded that there's a big world out there outside our, you know, human problems and stuff is always helpful. Uh, spending time with my five-year-old son and seeing the world through his, his eyes, because he's already heard of climate change and that stuff. Like, he he knows about some of these things, but he has, he also just gets so fascinated by everything out of nature that it's, it's, it's fun to see it through his eyes. And he, he, I have a, I have a budding naturalist. He already knows the names of all sorts of different insects and stuff. He was just telling me, Oh, we found a bug at preschool the other day. And my friend Xander didn't know what it was, but it was a box elder bug. And I'm like, okay, 
I love that you know what a box elder bug is. Like, all right. So he's, he's a lot of fun to spend time around and he gets so excited about everything. It's such a fun age. Yes. Okay. Hardest question of Uh-oh. our time together. Uh-oh. What's your favorite bird, Rebecca? Oh, I do hate this question. What's my favorite <laughs> bird? So my stock answer that I always say whenever anyone asks me this question is the calliope hummingbird. So this is the smallest hummingbird in North America, and they're just beautiful. The males have this, like, purple striped gorget that's different from what any other hummingbird in North America has. And I grew up in the eastern half of the country in Ohio, where there's only one hummingbird species. And so the first time I saw a calliope hummingbird was on a trip to southeast Arizona, where there's so many cool hummingbirds. And I was just so excited that I had finally seen this bird that's the smallest bird in North America. And now I live in eastern Washington, and they're a yard bird for me. We get them at our bird feeder every spring during migration. So I never get tired of, they, they don't stick around all summer. We just get like one or two showing up at our feeder in April and May. And so every year I, I'm put up, I put up the feeder and I'm waiting for the, like the one male calliope hummingbird that I'm going to see in our yard for the spring to show up. And it's always a moment of excitement. I love how feisty they are. Yes. Like the smaller the bird, the bigger the attitude, unless yes. it's a Canada, Canada goose. <laughs> <laughs> Those are that is a wonderful choice. I applaud your choice. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, Rebecca, tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can connect with you and how can they get their hands on your book. Yeah. So the book, you like, and it's called Flight Paths, and you sh- you. I believe the stock answer is you know wherever books are sold, wherever you like to buy books, and I always say that. I would prefer that you buy it from your local independent bookseller rather than Amazon. If they don't have it on the shelf, you can, you can ask and they will order you a copy. But hopefully they will have it on the shelf, I hope. Fingers crossed. Um, so yeah, wherever you'd like to buy books, you can just do a search for Flight Paths and Rebecca Heisman. As for me, I am on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I kind of have a complicated relationship with social media, so I am sometimes on them actively and sometimes not so much. The best way to keep up with what I'm doing and what I'm working on and book updates and future project updates and stuff like that is if you just go to my website, which is RebeccaHeisman.com, and you scroll down, there's an email list. And I only send an email to that list about once every two months, so it's not going to be super spammy, but just with what I've been reading recently and what I've been writing recently and events that I have coming up and things like that. So that would be the best place to keep up with me. Although if you were going to be spammy, bird spam is the best kind of spam. Well, that is true. (laughs) All right, everyone check out Flight Paths. I was walking by the new releases section in my library and it was sitting there and I grabbed it and it is so phenomenal. And now we have it on Audible as well. It is delightful on Audible. Um, And just what a gift to be able to chat with you today and learn from you and your deep, deep well of wisdom. This is a great book if you're a birder, but if you're not a birder, my husband Daryl is kind of I'm working on him. He's, he's almost a birder. We, we pray, we aspire. Um, but he is loving it because like I said, there's a lot of history, there's military history, there's American history, there's world history. Um, and all of these really interesting ways that birding has woven itself into the fabric of our country and our world. So even if you're not a birder, there is plenty there for you. If you are a birder, you needed this book yesterday because it's amazing. So There's a surprising amount of, yeah, like World War II and the space race and stuff like that in there that you probably wouldn't expect. <laughs> right? It's, it's all connected. Birds are, birds get around, literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca, thank you for the gift of your time and your wisdom and your expertise. I'm already excited about whatever the next book is. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put this on your soul. Yes, it does.